Hello, everyone. This is Rob Perra, Food Talk's executive producer. Today, Daniel Nirenberg and Food Tank hosted a special interactive live chat to help make sense of the election results and discuss what it means to the food system. Her special guests included Catherine Miller of Table 81, Navina Khanna of Heal Food Alliance, Kathleen Merrigan of Arizona State University Sweetie Center, Robert Martin of John Hopkins University Center for a Livable Future, Christopher Bradshaw of Dreaming Out Loud, Patricia Griffin of NVG, and Davida Davidson of Food Lab Detroit. Food Tank will be continuing to make sense of the election for those who care about food issues as the coming days unfold. Now, let's turn it over to Danny. Hey everyone, uh, good morning. This is a very special edition of Food Talk Live. I'm Danny Nirenberg, president and co-founder of Food Tank. Today, I will be sharing moderating duties with Food Tank's good friend, Catherine Miller, the founder and principal of Table 81, a strategy consultancy. She was most recently the vice president of Impact at the James Beard Foundation, where she built policy advocacy programs. And she's also a veteran of dozens of political campaigns at the House, Senate, and presidential levels. We are joined by some really amazing experts uh, who will discuss how yesterday's election will impact our food and agriculture systems, the climate crisis, systemic racism and social injustice, and a variety of other topics. We'll also talk about the idea of a citizen eater, someone who votes with their fork, of course, but also votes with their vote for the kind of food system that they believe in. So buckle up, everyone. These are folks who have a lot to say. Um, Let me just introduce them all briefly. We have Chris Bradshaw, the founder and executive director of Dreaming Out Loud. Davida Davison, the director of marketing and communications at Food Lab Detroit. Patricia Griffin, a partner at NVG LLC. Navina Khanna, the director of the Heal Food Alliance. Bob Martin, the program director of food system policy at Johns Hopkins University for uh, Center for a Livable Future. And last but certainly not least, we have uh, Kathleen Merrigan, the executive director of the Sweetie Center for Sustainable Food Systems. Uh, Thank you all for joining us. Uh, Catherine and I want this to be a frank and really open discussion. Uh, Feel free to build on what one another says, interrupt politely when necessary, um, and, uh, you know, have fun. I think there, again, there's a lot to talk about. Um, Catherine, before I throw it to you, I just want to check in with everyone. How's everyone doing this morning? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> right? How much sleep has everyone gotten? <laughs> we're still breathing. We're still waiting for where we, where we thought we'd be, you know. Navina, you're the most on brand this morning already. <laughs> <laughs> Count every vote, right? That's what we need right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Davida, you're in Michigan. She's in Michigan. Can you? <laughs> Davida's in Michigan, where the vote's going to still be counted. So, yeah. oh yeah, count every count count um, every vote, and uh, so important. Yeah. And Kathleen, you're in Arizona. We did our job. <laughs> yeah, we're in Arizona. I saw. Um, I saw some footage from the polls already closed in Arizona and there was like mariachi bands out and food trucks out and DJs out. Just like keeping people in line is beautiful. Joy to the polls. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was a great night. We had a great Senate candidate too. Mark, Kel- uh, mm-hmm. Mark Kelly was uh, a real joy to you know, be door knocking for him. He, 
outstanding candidate, and he goes right in because uh, Martha McSally was a, a special um, uh, appointment, so he goes right in. So he'll be voting in the lame duck. Fantastic. We're excited about that. Which is interesting ramifications for any economic recovery that gets pushed yes. through, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What are the things that to sleep early? Did you wake up surprised? I didn't wake up. <laughs> <laughs> didn't even get to bed, huh? <laughs> well, I, I went to bed pretty hopeful and, and I woke up and I'm still optimistic given uh, how the votes are being counted in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. So um, I, I was hoping I'd be uh, a lot stronger, but I'm still pretty optimistic. Well, but well, but Nevada's had it exactly right. Uh, count every vote. Yeah. Let's talk about that. I think so many folks were optimistic to see sort of a stronger turnout uh, for Biden. What what happened? Well, I think I think it's premature to say anything about the the turnout and how the votes are actually for Biden because so many votes have not been counted. Right. So this is it really did feel like the longest election day of our lives because it was an election season. And I think what we need to remember is that election season didn't end yesterday. We're still in election season. We're still right. waiting for those votes to be counted. Um, so, so we're very much yet to see what happens, not only on a presidential level, but also with the Senate and other races down ballot. So um, what's important now more than ever, just as we do all the time with our food system and think about you know integrity in our food system is to also think about what integrity looks like in our politics and to really really uh, make sure that we're all organizing together to make sure every vote is counted and that we're, we're defending all the voters who did turn out in record numbers um, to get their voices heard. Yeah, Navina, I, 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 I agree with you. I mean, election, I don't, think, I don't even think we should call it um, election day. Um, yes, we all vote. Okay. On November 3rd, I think that's important. It should be a national holiday, by the way. Um, but I think that we should really start to look at the language and how we describe election season, right? Mm -hmm. um, because I do think that early voting, absentee voting is going to be with us. It worked so well um, for so many people, hence the reason why we're here, folks um, voting by mail. So we're still in the middle of election season, y'all. Um, the votes are, are still being counted. But, but what really happened is um, folks need to understand that um, we need to be really connected with our people on the ground. Mm -hmm. and, and the reason why I say that is y'all stop listening to posters. The poster industry, like it's dead yeah. to me. Like, <laughs> right next to Weatherman. Like, it, is, <laughs> Weather it, is, it is dead, right? <laughs> along, with, along with political analysts, along with media consultants, along with the whole ecosystem, y'all. Mm -hmm organize your people. Like, right. and that goes along with the food system. We have to decentralize the way we think about voting and all voting starts on the ground. It starts on the ground. And so we're gonna show and improve. We're gonna show that in Detroit when Wayne County and Oakland County come in, Milwaukee's gonna show that when Wisconsin numbers come in, Philly's gonna show that when Pennsylvania's come in, we organized our people um, and we're ready. We knew this was gonna happen. Mm -hmm. I ain't scared, I'm not. I'm, I'm so glad the world is seeing um, with, with even in the midst of a pandemic with us burying our ancestors who were disproportionately affected by the COVID-19 crisis, black people organized and we ready. So just hold tight y'all. 
I just want to stress a really important point and one that I've been grappling with all night and this morning is this connection to who, what's really happening on the ground and how distracted we get from who we think should tell us what's happening. And we knew coming into this, we've had, we, this is a replay in some ways, but we need to also get connected to those that we don't organize with and we don't. Mm -hmm. And I am as much at fault. I'm tired of hearing myself say, well, I, you know, if I don't understand a certain part of my community, I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to just work in my community and, and figure out how to just raise those numbers. And I'm, I have made a commitment to myself and my work personally and professionally to figure out how I can, you know, learn more about what I don't know. Um, I've been doing this too long and it makes me too sad that I still feel confused by the incredible um, surge of voters that I don't agree with. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah. I, I need to put that out to the universe so that I do it. Sure. <laughs> well, I mean, I felt that way four years ago. Like I wasn't talking to the people I needed to be talking to. And, and, you know, this, you know, I feel like we all have this tendency to preach to the choir and not to the, you know, to the folks who, who disagree with us. How can we do more of that? How can we, you know, sort of get beyond, uh, I mean, and in some cases we're just, you know, we, it's too uncomfortable. How do we, embrace that uncomfortableness and talk to those folks. Yeah, I think yeah. A, yeah, I think that there's a couple of different ways you can do that. I think one is uh internal to your own communities, uh but also, you know, outward outreach to other folks. You know, internal to my community, I watched Lil Wayne, 50 Cent and other black male celebrities and other folks from the barbershop on down start to identify with, you know, very toxic male traits and, and traits of power that were disturbing to me. Um, and I can, you know, you can talk about them in normal times when, you know, there's, it's not election season. Uh, and those are, you know, very much problematic issues that manifest in, you know, misogyny and homophobia in other ways, but you don't often see it manifest electorally. Uh, and what I saw that disturbed me uh, where, you know, folks in my community beginning to identify with these traits and then uh, not only take their negative social, uh, you know, issues and then convert it into their votes that could that could uh, turn leads in key communities like in Detroit. Uh, and so for me, there's a lot of internal work to do. I'm also interested in that external work and, and unpacking some of the challenges around, especially white supremacy as one of the most uh, uh, inclusive clubs in America, apparently. Uh, you know, you want to look at the history of uh, immigrants in this country uh, from the ways of, of European immigration. Um, you know, that club uh, expanded at every every turn, whether it was the Italians or the Germans or what have you. And you want to dial down into some of the results that we do have currently, look at Florida and how that white identity politics has filtered into uh, immigrant Latino communities. Um, I'm interested in having that conversation. You know, when I when I hear folks being able to, um, or hear folks, you know, calling Biden a socialist and using these terms, and I'm like, mm, okay, socialism like what, right? <laughs> if you were to call him that, which he is not, right? You know, socialism like what? Canada's social health system, uh, you know, or England's. It's just the the cultural context is so off for someone to then align themselves on this soil with folks who have invested so much in drawing the blood of black folks, that has disturbed me and I want to have that conversation. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I, I just want to piggyback on that real quick because there's something was interesting that you just said, Chris, and that was the Latino population. And what I'm learning, and I got a lot to learn, y'all. Um, and, and I'm hoping um, that the Latino population um, will, will will hold my hand and kind of walk me through it, and we begin to kind of di- dive a little deeper. Is that the Latino population is is not monolithic, not, not and so monolithic. so yeah, as as, like as we begin to yeah. as we mm-hmm. begin to to talk about the Latino population, I think it's going to be really important for me me, somebody who's learning for us to be really specific, right? Yeah. And so it's not the Latino yeah. population, it's the Cuban population, Cuban population and it's the Venezuelan population in Miami-Dade that have aligned themselves with, with white supremacy and the right. language yeah. that the Trump mm-hmm. administration has been diving deep in the narrative, narrative that they have been advancing in that community around socialism. But on the mm-hmm. flip side of the Latino population, my God, you had the Mexican-Americans, the Latinos mm-hmm. in Arizona who have been organizing as a result to Joe Aparo that like that vicious evil yes. sheriff down there who are locking up. And, and, and if we <laughs> are not having a, a, a mm-hmm. complete and conversation about that particular population, because as much as I love Mark Kelly, he was amazing, great candidate, good for Mark Kelly, great Cindy McCain, thank you for the endorsement. But if we need to give those young Latinos the, all the respect that they deserve, they've been organizing and organizing and organizing and organizing. So I, I just mm-hmm. want to make sure that we're really specific when we're talking about groups of people, because like right, the Latino right. population, African-Americans aren't monolithic. So and so let's and let's just be very clear about that. Yeah, yes. yeah I, think it's, I just uh, really agree with what you just said at the end there, Davida, that we really need to be clear around the, the media is really hyping up this idea of like the Latinx boat pop, population all went to one side. And it's so clear if you look across the country, like looking at the Southwest and even how things are moving, California, Nevada, Arizona, mm-hmm. even that Texas was a contested state and that, that like some votes are still to be counted there. Like it is not right. a monolith. It is not the entire Latinx vote. It's not the entire vote of any one of our communities. Um, right. And it's just one small stronghold in one part of Florida that the media is focusing so much on. Yeah. Right. So it's always the job, hard job of the moderator to like just get out of the way when an amazing conversation is happening. But I do want us to talk a little bit about what last night means to food mm. and food politics and the fight for the farm bill. Uh, you know, we were talking about this in the pre-call, which is that you know I think so many food activists and people in the food system were really um, hopeful about an expanded majority in the Senate and expand a potential takeover of the Senate by Democrats, a potential expanded majority in the House. And that does not appear to have happened. Um, and so we're gonna let every vote get counted, but that does not appear to have happened. And so what this means, it appears that Colin Peterson has lost the chairman of the House Agriculture Committee, right? This is gonna open up a whole new world as we are going into a multi-year fight around the farm bill Right. Something that I believe everybody on this call really wanted to kind of blow up and turn into a food bill and have it be something different um, or at least look at how we could make it different. And so I'd, I'd love to just maybe, Trisha, if you could just talk about what you're seeing from an electoral standpoint as a as a uh, I'll use the dreaded word as a lobbyist in Washington, D.C. Sorry. Um, tell us a little bit about what you saw last night. And then I'd love to bring Kathleen and Bob into this conversation too, but and get us into this conversation about what last night overall means to the next few years related to food. Trisha? 
Yeah, thank you. Um, and you know, a, a lot still has to be decided, but I think, um, and I don't want to sugarcoat what happened last night. I don't want to sugarcoat status quo because that is not where we can stay yeah, um, at, at a at a elected uh, you know level um, and in a local level. Um, so. But my job is to continue to have to engage and interact with the federal government and, and find ways to engage and, and, and find opportunities and possibilities about the things that I feel very important that are dear to me. And, and at the top of that list is protecting our most vulnerable communities. And what does the Farm Bill do and the Agricultural Committee do or do not do to support that world and that part of, 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 of my work? Um, I have to say, and this might be somewhat controversial that Peterson um, losing was exciting to me. Um, and because it opens up new leadership on that committee, he was not new leadership. He was, he's old ag. He is very embedded in the old way of looking at both um, what the farm bill is and what it means to be a leader within the agricultural community. So I am thrilled um, that it was, it, his time is done. It was overdue. Um, and what I am hopeful for is that this opens up a pathway for new leadership. Obviously, it has to. We need a new chairperson. Um, and the next couple of folks who are in line are much more progressive. Um, and they, you know, whether it's um, Congresswoman Fudge or Mr. Scott, um, you know, it, that to me provides an opportunity. Again, these folks have been around for a long time, so we need more than just leadership to look different. But I feel like if we can get the House looking a little different, a little bit more exciting, um, it provides a different dynamic with the Senate, which is a whole nother um, complicated dynamic. But I'm going to stop there and see if anybody else wants to respond to that comment. Kathleen? Hey, look, I'm an old person on this panel, and I'm just enjoying listening to all the young voices. Um, we need an infusion of new people in food and agriculture. What what politicians understand, Democrats, Democratic politicians, is that 75% of farmers and ranchers in this country vote Republican. And that's probably not going to change until they pass on to another world. And so... Democrats don't pay enough attention to food and agriculture because of that. They, that's not where their votes are. And please be God, Vice President Biden becomes the next leader of our country. He goes into the White House understanding those realities and looking at all those red counties that we've been watching all night long on, on, on their various television sets. So or on our computers, you guys are all young. I actually have a television set. Um, so, uh, and I call it a set, that's really, that's really <laughs> easy to me. But, but, but this is the problem, as we narrowly define food and agriculture, uh, I don't see any win in the near future. We've got to get more people under the tent, we've got to redefine it, and we need to show uh, politicians that their votes there that connect with this broader agenda that I think all of us on this this screen are really interested in. So right now it's a it's a tough it's a tough morning for me, and I I totally agree every vote needs to be counted. But the one time I sort of choked back tears last night was when my old friend Van Jones was speaking on CNN and he said we may have won this that and the other thing, but we've lost a moral. Uh, we've lost the moral uh, victory that we were hoping for. So it's 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 a tough, tough um, morning. So I'll leave it to someone else to talk. 
Yeah, I would like to chime in a little bit about the influence or the the frame of the virus and how that's really brought some of the frailties or, or the fragile nature of the food system into focus for a lot of people who probably don't think a lot about it. I mean, um, the the COVID relief packages uh, that have been passed by Congress, very little of that money has gotten to small and medium-sized family farmers. Almost none of that money has gotten to, uh, to black farmers. Um, and so when, when we saw that a few uh, slaughter facilities um, were taken offline by the virus infecting workers who don't have proper access to healthcare, don't have decent living conditions, that sent ripples up the food system, the industrial animal food system, and led to you know slaughtering of 15 uh, to 20 million animals that were buried. And so the virus has, um, I think, uh, forced those fissures wide open. And I, so I think we have an opportunity because of the virus to address some of the food system issues that everybody's been interested in on this panel for quite I agree a while. with that, Bob, but you know, one thing that I thought was really interesting was the um, the polling that was coming out uh, on issues from CNN, where I was surprised, and um, this is one of the good notes of the evening, I think, actually people in terms of what issues were most important to them, uh, race was higher than the coronavirus. And that's crippled our economy. It's put everyone out of work, our friends in the restaurant industry are just um, without a lifeline right now, but people still focus on this year of racial reckoning. What are we going to do with that? What are we going to do with that energy and how are we going to use it to create change? Well, I think the food system, the, the existing food system, especially on the industrial animal side, really is representative of the racist nature of agriculture in the country. Um, uh, the discrimination that has been historic in, in USDA against uh, producers of color, uh, the fact that some of the large companies like Monsanto provide lower quality seeds to black farmers for their soybeans than than for white farmers. So I I don't I think race and food are intertwined um, because for me race is like uh, intertwined in everything about this country. So. Um, I think that's um, I think that's a good thing that people are are worried about race in the country. A good thing for food system reform. Yeah, sure. yeah. I think it's something for us to um, you know really pay attention to. And Bobby, I appreciate you talking about the diversity of farmers. Right, that not all farmers a are white. Not all farmers are in rural areas. Not all farmers own land. Right, there are people who work the land who are not even citizens and are farming. Um, but something for us really to take note of in this entire long election season is the number of candidates who actually were talking about food and agriculture issues in a way that we have never seen before, right? Even pre-pandemic, that we had um, candidates that were really talking about the need to break up big agriculture and break up big food and to um, end CAFOs in the way that we know them, right? And the confined animal feeding operations and slaughterhouses in the way that we know them. I think the, the coronavirus really brought to light for the broader populace, why our food system matters, and it became a real focal point of attention for folks. Um, but the Senate completely failed us, right? But the reason why we were all hoping for a different Senate outcome is because these relief packages that we're talking about, the Senate refused to pass them. So, 
the pe people are hurting so badly right now that they can't even see, you know, what is possible. Um, and I think that that actually really affected how people voted, right? Because they were seeing themselves in so much hardship. Um, mm -hmm. There was so much media blaming blaming the Democratic Party for wanting to do something about the coronavirus rather than actually seeing any action from the people who held power to do anything about it, to take care of their communities. And um, in the conversations that I was having with folks, I think that that was a real, um, I think if the Senate had acted earlier to take care of people, we would have actually seen a different outcome in some of those rural areas. Uh, it's unfortunate that people weren't able to see that it was the people currently in power who were the ones that were affecting them. Yeah. Um, Davina, but but now I understand that that might have been that might have been a tactic, right? Yeah. Can I just say I I too was really excited about um, some of the candidates really at, you know for the first time in a lot of ways talking about food talking about a system they may not have understood what that meant to them entirely but they were it was brought to light but this administration or this campaign did not the Biden campaign did not they were afraid of doing it. And so I want help as someone who has to continue again, engage in the political world that exists right now. How do we make that look different? They've, they felt like they could not make the stretch or the leap to talk more broadly about a food system and food policy beyond rural um, and what it meant for rural America. So I just, you know, yeah. I need Davida, Davida and Chris, does this go to your original point, which was all around organizing? Yeah, and I think this I, starts in our communities. Absolutely, Catherine. Um, and, and, and I think um, what the food system does a really poor job of is we do a really poor job of organizing. Hands down, we do. Number one is people are not taking to the streets and people are not protesting with their with their signs out and saying local food ecosystem now. When do we want it? When do we want now? People are not doing that. People are not taking to the streets mm -hmm. and fighting on the behalf of urban agriculture and CSAs. Like we do a very poor job of organizing. And the thing is, the reason why it's such a loss for the food system is because through food, we can connect to any and everything, y'all. Like food is such a way that we address so many issues through food. And we do a poor job of like organizing ourselves and connecting ourselves to broader issues. But here's the bright spot. Like, I understand that, uh, number one, um, we, it all starts with the farmers. But I'm going to tell you something. My, my, my problem is, y'all, is the fact that California feeds the world. And California is underrepresented as it relates to farmers. Why is it that California does, has the same representation in the Senate, right? than, I don't know, any of the, of, of the rural state farmers. Like, so there, we need to number one, do something about the electoral college and the way that these states are, are represented. Number two is I think the bright spot for me is you know, I cannot talk about food without talking about labor, right? And mm -hmm. what I mean by that is that that is where the bright spot is when it comes to organizing. Number one, we cannot talk about Nevada and how we are gonna win Nevada y'all without talking about the culinary workers who are on the ground. Here you got hospitality workers, thousands of hospitality workers out of a job. What were they doing? Laid off, right? Bodies on the line. These are the most, these are the most people whose bodies were most impacted by COVID. What were they doing? Canvassing, knocking on doors. Y'all, as messed up as Florida is, Florida, 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 what did we see on the state level? Florida passed what, y'all, last night? $15 an hour <laughs> wage. Labor is getting the job done. The labor, and, the, and, and why food is not connecting 
ourselves to the labor movement, again, you're talking to a Detroiter, right? Home of the UAW, home of the automobile industry. We need to do a better job of organizing ourselves. And then, and then last time I throw it over to Chris, is that I would be remiss to say that as of today, y'all, we are officially out of the, Par out of the Paris um, Agreement. So the United States is the only country in the world that is not a part of the, of the Paris Climate Agreement. But here's the good news. The good news is that we're going to win. And the other good news is that Michigan, Minnesota, New York, and Massachusetts sent the squad back to the, sent them back to the house. All right. And these are the individuals who are going to paint the new, the future for us for a Green New Deal. Y'all, this is, it ain't over. And we knew that the, the election was just the start, right? This is just the beginning. It ain't the end. So listen, we got work to do, but but I, I think we, we're we on the right track. We're, we're good. Chris? Yeah, I think we really need to address uh, issues around organizing in food. Uh, just to give you a microcosm of the challenges, um, I mean, again, we have to visit wealth and privilege and power. Um, you know, if you pass a bill to support brick and mortar restaurants, and we're gonna take DC as an example, um, you're going to benefit folks who were able to access the capital to occupy the brick and mortar restaurants, which is going to end up being uh, a bill that benefits mainly white folks. Because, you know, in this city, black and Latino folks have less access to the capital to uh, occupy those spaces. And so you're, you're going to pass things that, that um, are, are not reaching folks who are make up the majority of food makers if you're talking about somewhere like the district and so when you have organizing efforts oftentimes the the you know the smaller folks voices aren't making it to the to the decision makers and so until there's more discussion internal to industries uh like like um you know like restaurants about about how folks are able to um, how decisions are made in terms of organizing and, and passing relief bills and, and, and supports for business, um, then we're not going to have an equitable uh, outcome because we just haven't framed what's happening uh, internal to the food system in the right way. Um, that's happening every day. You know, here we we continue to have you know workers organizing to cancel rent. Um, you know, there's a lot of issues that uh, prevent folks from having uh, the you know brain space to organize as well, and we have to recognize those things. I think mutual aid networks and ways that have uh, formed on the ground have helped to to uh, relieve folks so they can get out and and organize. But we have to continue to look at things holistically uh, and and continue to move. Um, move things towards uh you know the the supports that support whole human beings and food is one of those central central things but you know again the the dynamics and the layers of the onion within the food system are what um we have to get at in terms of uh forming a broader coalition that could have more of a powerful voice well bob you've talked a lot about that need to sort of link food with healthcare and all of these other things do you want to comment on that yeah i mean i think uh chris and are exactly right um that we have to start looking at as as a system and and really that everybody should have the right to healthy food. Um, and if that's in you know uh, you know supporting increases in the minimum wage, but um, organizing um, uh, fair contracting practices in the poultry industry, then everybody should have the right to to healthy food. Um, and I want to say uh, kind of support something Kathleen said too. I think. I think we're going to see some changes in in how the how politicians relate to food issues because of the new people coming into the system that that Kathleen mentioned. Um, 
where I work, we do a lot of polling. Um, and, you know, our polling shows that depending on the issue, whether it's sustainability and the dietary guidelines or reforming the CAFO system, the public is with us. It's just um, a, a politician I, I used to work for um, said that uh, politicians see the light when they begin to feel the heat. And I think it's time to start bringing the heat. Yeah, continue bringing the heat. Continue bringing the heat, right? I think um, I think it's important for us to be clear too that you know our folks have been resisting every all of the attacks that have come on our communities, not only for the last four years, but for the last four hundred years, right? Folks have been resisting. Um, our people are resilient, and um, we, we we know that pockets are organized, and we are organizing also across sector and across race and across geography through, for example, my organization, the Heal Food Alliance, right? We're a nascent organization. And our goal really is to build our collective power across those things that tend to divide us and that the electorate would have us see ourselves as so divided, right? But we know that our struggles are completely interlinked. And we know that just as we're up against corporate control in the food system, we're up against the money that's in politics right now, right? So if we look at um, I'm, I was so excited about that win in Florida for minimum wage. If we look at what happened in California just now, um, workers got pretty screwed by Prop 22, right? And Prop 22 is the most expensive ballot measure that was uh, has ever existed in California. But the big companies, Uber and Lyft and others, put $200 million in to basically you know, roll back protections for workers. We also saw that under the cover of this election, while everybody was paying attention to the the presidential race in particular, um, the current administration <laughs> went ahead and froze wages for farm workers, right? They're basically set into place that for the next decade, farm workers are going to lose their wages, or at least those who are on H2A visas are going to lose their wages to their employers over this next decade. And the estimate is of something like $1.7 billion that are going to go into the hands of owners versus workers. Um, so yes, we need to count every single vote because we need a different, uh, we need A, to defend our, defend our folks, defend democracy, um, make sure that we have representation that is truly who the people voted for. And we're not there yet. We haven't finished that particular fight and we're gonna keep on that fight over the next few weeks. But we also know that regardless of what the outcome was gonna be of this election, that one election was not gonna be the silver bullet that changed everything for us, right? We've been in this fight for a really long time and the attacks are gonna keep coming on our communities, but we are still here and we are still organizing together and we are still building our power together. Um, I, I would be remiss if I didn't also shout out that our school of political leadership, if you want to take leadership in, pol in policy around food and agriculture, our school of political leadership is taking applications right now. Applications are due in 10 days on November 14th. Mm -hmm. um, you can go to our website, healfoodalliance.org and find out how to apply so that you can actually be one of those people that is organizing campaigns and running for office um, to transform this food system because we need that. Can I, Norvina? Oh, no, after you. I'll go after you. Okay. Yeah, I just, I just, I, I, I didn't want to lose her. I got excited when she mentioned it because <laughs> I've been studying this like, like all. I've been keeping my eyes on it, um, and I was so upset, um, when, when it, when Prop, uh, twenty two, um, the proposal twenty two, not only passed, Norvina, but it passed overwhelmingly. 
right? And as we know, that's the ballot measure that allows uh, gig economy workers like Uber um, and Lyft um, to treat this to, to treat those drivers like contract workers instead of employees. And here's to what Bob's point, and we've been talking about we don't do a we don't do a good job of connecting the dots. And so not only does this apply to Uber and Lyft, but it also applies to um, Instacart, like people who drive for Instacart and go pick up groceries, right? Again, connecting it to food. And so here's the thing, Davida, why are you like so focused on this? Because here's two things that I know. Feeding America told us that due to the pandemic, more than 54 million people are experiencing food insecurity right now. 54 million people. Out of those 54 million people, 18 million people are babies, y'all. These are our children that are experiencing food insecurity. In the state of Georgia, it represents 12.5% of their entire population that's experiencing food insecurity. Why is this so important to me? Because I'm starting to connect dots. And the thing is, is that the way that our corporations are controlled, the way that the technology industry is creeping into our food system is that y'all, just when two weeks ago, Instacart, Aldi, and the EBT SNAP payments program, they all formed a coalition. So now Instacart, Instacart drivers or Instacart shoppers are able to use their EBT and SNAP programs when paying groceries, what, online. You, mm -hmm. you, you see what I'm saying? Like, and so yep. now it's just kind of like, the only reason why I mentioned this in, in food insecurity is that technology and grocery delivery is not gonna solve food insecurity problems. That's not the answer to food insecurity that, oh, let's use innovation through the technology in the tech industry and have them now delivering groceries to people right. who are food insecure and let them use their EBT SNAP benefits in order to do that. That ain't solving food insecurity. And if it does, it's short term, not long term. We should be talking about a complete and total dis, dis mantling of our corporate food system and building mm -hmm. infrastructure locally from the ground up. You know what's going to save food insecurity? CSAs. You know who's going to save food insecurity? Urban farmers and growers. You know what's going to save food insecurity? Good paying jobs. Like, we're not connecting the dots, y'all, and we're yeah. not explaining this to folks. I would add to yeah. that and that's that's the community that would solve food insecurity. Um, you know, yeah. you, essentially, we're just talking Hello. about turning poor folks into a, another market for big tech. In the, and there and, you go. And again, that's wealth extraction, even from the wealth of the EBT card, right? <laughs> um, so, you know, having watched what transpired over the course of the pandemic, um, again, you mentioned the, the the aspect of children slipping into food insecurity. There are gonna be 12,000 kids here in DC that slip into deeper food insecurity. And, um, you know, we very much welcome ways to, you know, uh, essentially, you know, staunch the wound or, or, you know, stop the bleeding in some respects. And so have worked with various uh, partners to deliver emergency uh, of food aid to, to, to stem the tide. But, um, you know, we've watched restaurants and, and folks who have access to wealth be able to figure out different ways to survive through these means. Uh, meanwhile, folks who don't have access to wealth uh, have not been able to, you know, save their restaurant, figure out how to get a contract from, you know, a government agency to make emergency food or emergency meals. Uh, and so at every turn, uh, we've seen the racial wealth gap play into how folks are able to not only physically survive contracting the virus and not or not have to work, um, but who have been able to use uh, the emergency food system as a way to, you know, help their business survive and maintain white wealth and white ownership. 
Um, yeah. And so when I start to think about, you know, the bigger structural issues uh, that track back to chattel slavery, to redlining and all the other aspects that uh, have impacted our food system, again, that racial wealth, closing the racial wealth gap and, and reparations are, are, are um, you know, ways to close food insecurity and, and address these issues. Uh, longer term, you know. Exactly. And Chris, here's the deal. Bob mentioned healthcare, right? Bob mentioned mm -hmm. how we need to connect the dots. And you're talking about restaurants. Why is it that our frontline workers, the people who are putting their lives on the line, particularly indoor dining, number one, you talk about slavery, their wages are steeped in the institution of labor, of mm -hmm. slavery because of the sub-minimum wage. But these are the same people who we expect to police individuals who come into restaurants and don't want to want, don't want to wear masks. These are the same people who then have to tell a customer who they're also going to ask them to supplement their income through wages to put on, on a mask. And now they're putting themselves and their health at risk, their family's health at risk. And guess what, Chris and Bob? These are the people who do not have health care. Like, it's mm -hmm. like, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, Trisha, you've been trying to get in here for a while. and I'm then sorry, Trisha. No, no, no. You're good? <laughs> this is, I just, um, I didn't want to lose, no, this is fabulous. I'm not, <laughs> um, I, I didn't want to lose this point about our, our relationship and partnership with labor um, and, and how you define that. Um, again, um, I, I, my world is around, uh, you know, unfortunately, most of the time, the federal policy world, but if we don't talk about labor connected to the food system and we talk about, don't talk about farm workers, which we don't at the federal level. And there are a lot of reasons I think that, that there's a reason for that. Um, you know, I've heard everything from it's too much to hold all of those issues together. Farm workers issues are immigration issues. And they're, but they, they and I think that is actually in some ways a campaign from the government to not allow us or make us feel empowered to come together. Again, I, you know, that's a theory I have. But another commitment that I am making, and it didn't matter what happened in this, in this election, is every time somebody wants to talk about how do we organize around the food system, if farm workers and labor are not sitting with me or having a conversation about this, and it's hard, right? Because agriculture has a struggle with with certain wage you know adaptations they'd have to make labor has challenges with a lot of the food folks that i work with i'm not going to allow that to go further um without us figuring it out and i need your help so i'd love to hear how you have been doing it because i know you are doing it on the ground um but here in dc it's still a major undertaking yeah. you know what you bring up get in here real quick before we tackle that who did, who did you just call on? Kathleen? Yeah. Oh, calling me? Well, I just want to say, how do we put all this good energy into action, assuming a democratic administration? I want to go back in time to the beginning of Obama. We had just suffered a you know, serious recession. We had stimulus bills. Um, and we had a democratic Senate and a democratic House for those first two years. And yet... Um, the decision was made essentially at the White House that we were going to put all our money on health care. We we're going to put all the poker chips there. I didn't disagree with that, but on my short list going into office, I had hoped that we would deal with immigration reform. There's no sector of the economy more dependent on undocumented workers. It's criminal. Uh, but there were a lot of things that just went by the wayside. So I think um, we've got to figure out what's, what's most important. A SNAP was a big battle, even in those first two years, with a Democratic Congress 
we had 48 million people on SNAP at that point, 49, maybe it was 49 point something. And there were all kinds of efforts to um, cut back on SNAP because of the dollars, even though it's a mandatory program. So I just, I don't want to paint a rosy picture. I want to just talk about a few mechanics right now. So um, a lot of groups are writing transition papers to hand to the transition team. Um, uh, and, and I hope people are out there doing that and doing them in very uh, um, thoughtful ways and getting a lot of different sign-ons to those transition uh, papers because, because the traditional Aggies, they're doing it. And the Republicans are doing their transition papers and they're going to send it into the Democratic transition team. Mm-hmm. Then we've got to figure out who are going to be the people that are going to take those political jobs in uh, USDA and EPA and FDA, um, Federal Trade Commission. I mean, there are a lot of different jobs. Labor Department, you guys are talking a lot about uh, worker issues, very important. Who are going to, who, who's, who's going to be ha- uh, willing to leave where they're at and go and take one of those jobs, go through the vetting process? Um, it's really important. And those jobs, you, you have to have a strategy to get those jobs. It's not because you're the best and the brightest uh, necessarily. It's not because um, uh, so one person likes you, you usually need to run a whole campaign. I didn't become deputy secretary by accident. It was something I had been working on. Oh, I actually wanted to be an undersecretary. I, I, it was accidental that I got kicked upstairs, but I had run a campaign for myself for, for a couple of months. And, and so who out there who shares the views around uh, the screen is willing to do that? And then um, every state in the country has a political appointee in charge of rural development, and a political appointee in charge of the Farm Service Agency. A lot of people don't understand that. Those people are wicked powerful, wicked powerful. They decide so much about how those monies are distributed in their state. Every state also has a executive director of the Natural Resource Conservation Service, but mm. those are the guys. But who, who are we going to field as candidates for those, those people? So these are just boring mechanics, I get it, but these are the people who are going to uh, do so much. I live down the road from Navajo Nation. 50,000 people in Navajo Nation do not have running water or electricity. 50,000 homes. USDA could do something about that if we get the right people in those jobs making that a priority. Yeah. And, and, so, and so here's the thing, how do you connect I love that you so how do you connect Navajo Nation to Flint, which is right up the road from me where our water supply system was poisoned um, as a result of 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 a of a of a governor who just for the sake of the budget, for the sake of saving money, right, um, decided to flip to switch a whole city's town off of a water system unto a, a water system where sewage was running through. Like, how do we connect these, these dots? Because to, to Navina's point, like, there are so many more, we share so many more similarities than we do differences. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the I think- water thing is, uh, sorry, yeah. I'll just say this one thing. Yeah. Flint's the canary in the coal mine. Um, I don't know if we use that expression anymore, but essentially we have uh, water system needs across this country really crumbling 
infrastructure and if you're in a um, poor community, if you're in a rural community, a small town, you just don't have the tax base, even if you give people whopping tax bills to pay for those water systems. So it's a big infrastructure need. Will this ne next administration come out with an infrastructure bill? The Trump administration had said they were going to go forward and that didn't happen. We have the oh, we had an infrastructure week. Every, we had an infrastructure week every time he got into a, a crisis. So what was that? Every every two weeks, it was like this is infrastructure week. Like yeah, yeah, really. yeah. But, but I also look at the Green New Deal, how it's shaped up. There are a lot of missing parts in that yeah. Green New Deal that we need to address because all of us on this screen have connections to those people, and we need yeah. to have a broader conversation about what that could look like. Yeah. Yeah, I think that it's just really important for us to just be careful right now, even in the way that we're talking about things like there, there is so much experience, wisdom, genius solutions in the communities that we're talking about, right, whether it's Navajo Nation or Flint or among restaurant workers or whomever. Um, and, and folks are, folks know what they need, right, we don't need to be coming up with solutions or thinking about like, what the what the magic is that's going to change things or even rely on any particular politician to change that right if we actually invest in the leadership that's already in those communities and invest resources into folks being able to make it happen for themselves in those communities for example in navajo nation you know during the peak of covid navajo nation was suffering the most right because of lack of running water and lack of electricity to even have refrigeration for vegetables and uh, meat and things like that and there are folks in Navajo Nation who have been organizing for years to get solar power in their communities, who have been organizing um, sheep growers in their own community to have a cooperative of sheep growers. And there's, there are things available to them. They just are not resourced to be able to make mm. that the norm. Um, so instead of continuing to think about like what we can do on the outside, also just investing in communities and their leadership and trusting that leadership um, is, is really important for us. And that gets to, that gets to the heart of what organizing is too, I think. Mm -hmm. Well, it's also up to us to help empower their leadership because they're not getting their fair share of the pie. Let's face it. Mm -hmm. and, and and to put um, running water and electricity in 50,000 homes is no small price tag. Uh, and the federal government gives out a very technical term, globs of money. And we've seen unbelievable money go into uh, farmers' hands, big farmers, big farmers who don't need this money, uh, who are, are, are growing crops for livestock and, and for export. Yeah. So we need to change how that pie is divided. And part of it is helping local leaders, empowering local leaders, showing the pathways to where those resources are and organizing, as all you guys are saying, organizing to make it happen. Yeah. And and I'll just and I'll just jump in and say this is that you know the the folks that are on the ground whether it be the Hill Alliance or you know my organization Food Lab Detroit so um, so fire um, farm and then Leah Pennington all of these uh, organizations that are doing great work on the ground Chris is doing great work on the ground in the D.C. area kind of organizing y'all the reality is is that these organizations that are trying to build power amongst our folks that are on the ground hell we're under resourced right. and one thing one thing that this coronavirus has showed is that not only do, do folks um, in our communities, black and brown people know exactly what we need, but we know how to get it done. And it is unfortunate that in our communities, 
even within our organizations, that philanthropy specifically will fund a white-led organization before they fund an organization that's led by a person of color. And we are mostly connected to our community and we know they can get the job done, but we don't even get the support on the ground to even begin to build deeper relationships and build up that leadership possibility and that brilliance that we know our community has. So, I mean, it's, it's tough. No, I mean, to be to that point, like, it's really interesting. I was thinking of as you guys were all talking, and especially as Kathleen was sort of laying out a roadmap of all these places where power and resources will exist to be used within the next administration. And I know that the women's community has a whole project right now of putting names forth for administration posts, right? I don't know that project exists in food, does it? Yeah. There are like, folks organizing on that. Yeah. Yeah. There, there okay. folks organizing on that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm like, where's that spreadsheet with everybody who yeah. should be going into each of those jobs? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think also to the point that um, that was made earlier, Kathleen, I think you made this point around just like the different departments that exist. It, it is structural, right? I mean, Trisha, you said this too. It's structural that our food system is all encompassing, but we, we even only talk about USDA and talk about the That's farm true. bill, right? But of course, Department of Labor, EPA, um, Environmental Protection Agency, Health and Human Services, um, Department of Homeland Security. Home Security. Like, there's so many departments that affect our food system and we really need a more coordinated effort and we need to be advocating for a more coordinated effort between those different departments to achieve the kind of food system that we want. Absolutely. Breaking down those silos is important. We only have a few minutes left and so I want to make sure everyone can make a final point. Um, when I was watching Van Jones last night, before things got a little bit, uh, he got a little dep bit depressed. He was talking about the politics of joy. And so I'm wondering how we can bring that joy back to this movement that you are all a part of and, and how we can go beyond, you know, no matter what happens today or later this week or a month from now, how can we bring the joy back to the organizing and, and then the need to amplify all the good work that you all and so many others, so many others in this country and around the world are doing? Anyone want to start? Chris? <laughs> Why do I have to go first? <laughs> <laughs> because your organ called dreaming yeah. out loud. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you sighed. <laughs> I guess the name nominated me. Um, yeah, I think the politics of joy, you have to find that in the work that you do and the folks that you're around every day. You know, we are on the ground. Um, providing opportunities for farmers and black food makers to make food for the community. Uh, we're on the ground in neighborhoods day to day. And so folks will tell us, you know, thank you and to keep fighting. And so I find joy in that, you know, um, that will refuel you, you know, what to, to know that it makes a difference, um, uh, makes you a little bit more heartened every, every day. And so uh, I, I kind of, find those pieces and, and remember those things when I am challenged with what what is happening um, in the bigger picture. Um, I just have to know, you know, remind myself that the that that art bends towards justice at the end of the day uh, and that it is it's there's a saying my grandmother used, always says, you know, it's not as long as it has been. And so, you know, as long as you fight that way. Great. Navina. Sure, I don't want to sugarcoat anything right now. I don't want to pretend that we're not like in the fight of our lives mm -hmm. right now. Like it is up to us. We we 
can't be dismissive about this. It is up to us to make sure that every single vote is counted right now mm -hmm. and that our people are taking action. And there, there is a role for everyone in that, right? There is a role for music makers in that. There's a role for people who make food in that. There is a role for people who can take to the streets. There is a role for people who take legal action. There's a role for everybody in making sure that we hold this fight and we can bring our joy and our love and our relationships to this fight. But we need everybody to plug in right now to defend our right to vote, defend the votes and take action together right now. There are places you can go, like the Protect the Results Coalition and others who are already activating people and are ready to, um, to mobilize on a local level, a state level, to make sure that we are defending everybody's right to vote, the right that has been fought for for so long um, and so many communities have been excluded from. We know we need to completely transform the system, but right now, in this moment, we bring our joy, our relationships, our love and passion to this fight right now to defend ourselves. Great, Patricia. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't want to do this today. <laughs> I was having a hard time, um, and uh, I was uh, I was an organizer for about 15, 17 years. And I, you allowed me to reconnect to why I do my work and why I needed to do this panel um, because I have a lot more work to do. But I need to stay really. I I need to continue to go to my touchstone, which are the people who are on the front line doing the the, the real work um, to inform me and to be my allies in this as I, I take on the, the role that I've decided to take on in uh, increasing access to power. So thank you. Thank you, Davida. Yeah, you know, it's, it's really hard um, right now for me to be joyful. But what I but I but what I will say is that it brings me joy every single day that I'm very clear that I am a part of a long legacy um, toward the fight, black liberation and freedom. And and because I am I was born and raised and steeped in the black liberation movement, what I do know and what I do find joy in, y'all, is speaking truth to power. Because what James Baldwin tells us at this particular moment, he says the messiness of the world is a direct reflection of the lies and the dishonesty that we tell ourselves. And I'm sorry, but white folks keep telling y'all selves lies and dishonesty. Talking about this is not who we are as a country. This is exactly who we are as a country. Yes, it is. And when you all stop lying to you all yourselves and start realizing that this is who we are, then maybe, maybe that we can move forward. And so my joy really comes in speaking this truth to power. And the fact of the matter is, if you really want to know how we move forward as a country, is that white folks are going to have to let go of the white supremacist ideology. This myth that there is some sense of human valuation, and if there was such a thing, white people would be living at the top of it. Because what this leads to, self-entitlement, the dehumanization of people, particularly people who look like me. When all this is, it had nothing to do with white anxiety. What this has to do with is the fearing of the browning of America. And if we can speak that truth, and if we can get through that, that'll bring me joy. <laughs> Thank you, Davida. Bob? Uh, well, I think connecting with uh, everybody on this call is an example of, I think, what we need to do. I mean, I, I think we need to uh, collaborate and work together. And I'm, I'm still um, optimistic that, um, that we'll have a new administration and it'll give us new opportunities to work together. One of the things the Center for a Livable Future does is advises the food policy councils around the country in the US and Canada. And I think whether they're a community, uh, a county or a state, um, it's, um, <clears throat> It's been focused on equity and, and sharing power and developing uh, local food, whether it's in the, in the urban setting or like in Baltimore, working with 
uh, Dr. Heber Brown um, uh, and the and the black community and the black churches in the community. So I think my joy is um, getting to listen to so many smart people on a call like this. Thanks so much, Bob. Kathleen. So um, my joy will be when people who are listening to this broadcast decide they're going to become state directors of rural development or state directors of the Farm Service Agency. And the way you do that is the Democratic uh, congressional delegation, delegation, you say, all have to write letters to the Biden administration. Those are powerful jobs. Take them. BIPOC community, take them. Get those jobs. That will bring me joy. Awesome. Catherine, do you want to comment as well? I, my joy is going to be when we stop depending on top-down leadership and build our leadership from the communities. That's what gives me joy every day is working within these communities, learning from these leaders. And I mean, something like today, I didn't want to do it either. <laughs> at one point last night at like one o'clock in the morning, I was like, no. Um, but, you know, this is, we could see the bleakness here or we can see the opportunity. And the opportunity, no matter what, is that we can we can actually lead our country from within our communities and listening to community-based leadership. And that brings me joy. And seeing all these faces, I mean, Kathleen and Bob and Chris and Navina and Trisha and Davida, like, thank you so, so much. Um, it was powerful to hear you. It was, um, and we hear you all. Um, and it's uh, always an opportunity to learn for you, from you. And I can't thank you enough for doing this today. Uh, yeah, thank you so much. I want to thank Catherine. This is actually her idea, even though she's not telling me she didn't want to do it, but I'm so glad she did. Um, this uh, broadcast will be available on uh, Food Tanks podcast, Food Talk with Danny Nirenberg. So please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you all for joining us and, and, and keep up the good fight. Thank you all for what you do. Thank you. Please feel free to suggest future guests and anything you think we can improve. Send us an email at danielle at foodtank.com. Thanks so much for listening. Tune in next time.